Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast with me, Razia Iqbal. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Obviously, all these podcasts are pretty special and we've had some great guests so far. It's truly wonderful today, though, to have a guest back. A warm welcome to Hallie Rubenhold, who in 2019 won the prize for The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper. Indeed, you could fill rooms in libraries with titles both serious and spurious, which for more than a century have dedicated themselves to what we can call ripperology, yet none have concerned themselves with the territory of the book we're going to be talking about today. An immaculate work of social history, which restores the dignity and humanity through detailed biography of the lives of of the five women who, until now, have largely been forgotten. We're also joined by Stig Abel, who was, in 2019, the chair of Judges, and he hosts the new Times Radio Breakfast programme. Welcome to you too, Stig. Another noteworthy thing about this episode, although I'm at home and uh, Stig is somewhere in West London, this is the first episode where at least one of our guests is in a studio. That's a first since COVID-19 made that impossible. Hallie joins us from King's Cross. Uh, Stig, where are you? I am in a park in uh, West London. We're recording this on the hottest day of the year. So I'm sitting in a pair of shorts and a singlet, like a sort of Australian <laughs> waif. So if you can imagine that, picture, picture that scene if you want to. Uh, yeah, let's not. Let's move on. Um, Hallie, <laughs> let's, start, let's start with, um, with you. And, and just tell us a little bit um, about what life has been like since you won. Uh, let's go back. Actually, let's go back to when you won. I was in the room when you did win and you looked genuinely gobsmacked. You did not expect, <laughs> it seemed to me, to win. <laughs> I, I, I was. I was completely gobsmacked. And um, yeah, it, I, I, was, I wasn't expecting it at all. And actually, I'm always going to remember that moment when my name was called and I heard the first part of my name called and the table I was sitting at which was um, populated by uh, amongst others my husband and my uh, and trans world who who published the book um, everybody just roared as soon as the first part of my name was said I just couldn't believe it I was completely stunned and uh, literally the room was spinning and um, it's one of those moments that I will remember for the rest of my life Wonderful, absolutely wonderful moment for you. Uh, Tell us how your life changed. I mean, there were a series of interviews. I remember interviewing you immediately after uh, after that. You came into the studio at the BBC, and and I I I just wonder how much the your your life has changed before COVID (laughs) nineteen made it a different change again. So let's talk about the impact of the prize first. Well, I mean, winning the prize has. I mean, I just it's it's hard actually for an author to say to say this, but to, to even put it into words. I mean, it, it's been transformative um, in um, first of all, it, it, it feels wonderful after having written five books for this one to have um, acquired the recognition that it has. But also because there's such a message behind 
what I've written and that message has touched so many people and having won the Bailey Gifford it it gives it that extra platform it allows for it it means that more people's attention has been caught by this and um and and that really is given the the subject matter I think incredible as far as I'm concerned um uh and I feel you know with this book and the intention it's had it's really changed the narrative of Jack the Ripper and you know and and this this is a big trope in our culture and to have that impact is phenomenal Hmm. I, I wonder, Stig, to what extent you all were acutely aware of that when you were judging uh, the, the prize. I mean, the, the, the six on the shortlist are all extraordinary books and all, not all of them, but, but a few of them have real contemporary resonance. And, and, and I wonder to what extent some of that fed into the conversations that you were having when you were talking about Halley's book. Yeah, I think the joy of, of Halley's book is that the resonances are there, but she doesn't slap you around the face with them. So you can read the book as just a wonderful piece of social history, a piece of, uh, of just fine writing, immaculate research. I mean, the research in this book is such a brilliant piece of, uh, such, an, such a brilliant intellectual achievement. So you can read it as a story or several stories of, of these women, but then you pause to reflect on why these women's stories have been occluded, how they fitted into a general narrative of history, how they've created or they've been ignored in the tale of Jack the Ripper, which has become so fetishized by our society. And it makes you think about contemporary resonances very, very deeply. So it's both a hugely relevant piece of, of writing in that sense, but it's not, it's not puffed up with its own sense of relevance. If someone is sort of worthily wagging their finger at you while you're reading, I don't think it's always necessarily a pleasant experience for a reader. So the joy of the book, and it is a deeply joyful read, even though it's so tragic, because it's such an amazing set of stories, is um, you can read it as history, you can get an awful lot out of it. And then when you close it, it makes you think, and it makes you think in an important and interesting way. And, and, and that's was very clear, actually, I recall in the, in the final judging meeting, as we were talking about six very, very good books, it almost became immediately obvious in sort of the fifth minute of the final meeting. And we'd had all these wrangles over the preceding few. I kind of just knew this was going to win and, and, and win uh, very, very straightforwardly, which then it did. The last meeting was not a long meeting. Mm, I, I remember I was a judge um, a couple of years ago and I, I remember so clearly how hard that six down to one uh, meeting was. Um, Hallie, you have dedicated the book to uh, the five women and uh, I, I feel it's important that we, we just name them. Um, so just, just name all five women for us and, and let's talk a little bit about uh, what it was that drew you to telling their stories. Well, uh, their names are Polly or Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. Um, and um, yes, and I think it's very important that we remember the names because their names have been left out of the narrative for so long. Um, what drew me to their stories? Well, I mean, I think the complete absence of them in, in the Jack Ripper narrative 
was what drew me to it initially. It was, it was... That must have surprised you. Did it surprise you that there was nothing really written in any kind of serious way about the, yeah, the victims it, of Jack the Ripper? It completely shocked me and it made me very angry. I mean, before I wrote this book, there was, uh, there's a very small, uh, like a, a pamphlet, you know, it's about 63 pages of text about these women and it sets out the... Uh, the genealogical aspects of their life and um, um, important dates and that sort of thing. Um, but there's no context. And um, these women have been talked about, but they haven't been talked about publicly. It's been aficionados, it's been ripperologists who have done it amongst themselves. But I think the important thing is um, for their names, for their memories, for their stories to enter our culture more broadly and um and what surprised me was that there there there, there was no there, there was no evidence of this anywhere um you know you walk around the east end of london and people put posters up of jack the ripper artwork various things like that paintings on walls the jack the ripper tours his presence is palpable but those women are not there and it is their story. It's not their murderer's story. And and so I think this was one of the things that drew me to, to writing this book. And the, mo the most important thing, really. Is there a way in which you can talk about what all these women had in common? Because the, the general perception was that they were all prostitutes, that they were all sex workers. And it's that's certainly not the case. No, that isn't. It isn't the case at all. Um, and it, what amazed me as I was doing the research for this book was how diverse these five lives were. Each one was totally different. You know, these are five women who ended their lives in abject poverty and how they got there that's that's five different trajectories um you know it's not the same poverty isn't the same story for everybody and i think that's you know that taps into what stig was saying about the modern resonances of this obviously i felt that all the way through um and and the story of these five women is the story of women in poverty today in london in the capital and probably in other places as well um and um you know, and and I think I think that that sort of speaks for itself. Let Let's talk. Uh, Stig mentioned the the scrupulous way in which you conducted your research. I I wondered about how frustrating it was for you that that there was so little about Mary Jane Kelly because she of the five is the most enigmatic, if you like, and 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 also she's the only one who was murdered inside. All all the other four women were murdered outside on the street. Yes. Um, well, this she, this was the frustrating one, really, and and I think. But as a historian, one has to say, look, there just simply isn't the source material there to give us the picture we would like to have of this person's life. And but in a way, that makes her even more interesting. And and I mean, she does fit the mold of of a sex worker. In fact, um, I realised I didn't answer the first part of your my last answer That's okay. but, <laughs> but um the, the the she was the one who left this very clear trail of evidence 
in actual documentation that she was involved in sex work um, up until the point that she died. The other four, one of them, um, Elizabeth Stride, was working as a sex worker when she lived in Sweden. But then also she, when she fell on hard times, we know she was picked up for soliciting um, four years before she died. So she did return to it at one point. We don't know. She was actively soliciting when she died. And actually, ultimately, it doesn't matter. You know, what matters is that we shouldn't just put labels on people unless we know something about them and the fact that this label prostitute has stuck for so many years for 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 decades for over 130 near coming up on a, a 130 what is it three years now um uh, you know and we've never questioned it i think is important we need to look at why those women were stigmatized in the way they were um mary jane kelly back to mary jane kelly's particular situation um yes it was enormously frustrating not to be able to find um the the evidence that i would have liked to have given more color to her story to given her to have given her more flesh but that in itself is fascinating that she's enigmatic and that's reflective also of of the what we find when we look at the lives of sex workers on how they slip very fluidly through society because they change their names they change their identities they change what they are they move around they're not in the same address um and that in itself is is very fascinating Stig, the, um, the, the, the point that you made about uh, the, the enjoying reading these stories, however tragic the stories were, I mean, part of judging this prize is, is to do with exceptionally well-researched books, but in the end, it's also about being able to read something that is elegantly and beautifully wrought. I mean, that, that, and that is clearly present in Hallie's book, but I, I wonder how much the stories have stayed with you because when you read so many books and I've judged many book prizes and 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 I know you read an awful lot I just wonder how how what it is that you would say elevates a story so that it stays in your mind for for months if not years afterwards uh, I, you know I think when we're in the judging process um people have different most important criteria in their mind so some people it's all about the resonance. It's all about how important a book is. And for other people, it's all about how beautifully written the book is. And they have to be both, but you probably prioritize one or, or, or the other in your mind. And, and for me, that has to, I was more on the beauty and the relevance when I thought about books. And, and, and Hallie's book and, and all the books that got to the, to, the, to the top six, and particularly Hallie, it's got to be, it's got to have phrases that linger in your mind. It's got to have, a, have be something that you want to press on to someone else. And actually, I remember after reading Hallie's book the first time, I was sitting with someone from the TLS where I was at the time, um, an editor there. And I just said, look, I think you've just got to read this book. And I think it's brilliant. Uh, and you, you'll love it. And she came back to me about three days later and just said, oh, this is so, you know, just, just she was utterly thrilled with it as a piece of as a piece of work and, and that's the test in the end for all book prizes really i, I fail to understand how how judging a book prize is actually that difficult it's not difficult because you respond to things viscerally in your life in every respect and in the end the winner of a book prize can't be the one that that, that sort of ticks enough boxes or grudgingly 
you kind of feel is the most appropriate in a given context in a given period. It's the one that you want to hand to someone and say, you've got a long train journey. Don't worry. This will be worth reading. Uh, and that's what's great about Halley's book because it does, it does tick lots of boxes. It is, it is in a great piece of history. It's a fine piece of intellectual work. It's, it's relevant as we've been talking about. But in the end, if you're stuck on a train for three hours, it's a book that you want, you'll be delighted you put in your bag before you left the house. Uh, and that, to me, is the thing that ultimately matters when it comes yeah. to books. Th- that's a, a, a brilliant, brilliant uh, definition. Uh, Hallie, in that context, what, uh, what have you been reading uh, in, in the world of nonfiction? I mean, you, you obviously research all the time as a social historian, but what have you been reading that, that has struck you as being something that you would press into someone else's hand? <laughs> Well, I, I'm I'm going to be totally honest. I've I've just been immersing myself in my research for my next book. So, um, and um, often the can way you talk I, about that a bit? Yes, yes. I was going to say often the way I work is when I'm very very um, immersed in what I'm doing. I just read exclusively my research and unfortunately that becomes reading for pleasure because I can't stop thinking about it even when I'm lying in bed so I've been <laughs> I've been reading books about um uh the Crippen murder of 1910 which I'm writing about next but I'm writing about it from the perspective of well I mean one of the things about again this is uh, an, a murder which is has has become fixed in the public imagination uh, in this country in particular but there are so many things about this case which tells us about the world in which it occurred but more importantly I realized as I was looking at this you know Dr. Crippen is is front and center of this story but the reality is if you removed him this is a story of populated by about 26 women um there are there is the woman who he killed who was his second wife and then there was his first wife who died in mysterious circumstances and then there was his mistress who he ran off with and then there is the entire um world around his second wife Belle Elmore and she was a music hall performer and the, the only reason why this case was even pursued was because the music hall ladies guild which she belonged to walked into Scotland Yard and begged them to investigate this and then they hired their own private investigator and they tried to stop Crippen actually physically stop him um, they got together with Bell's sisters in New York and stood in New York Harbour waiting for the ships to come in um, they did everything they ca- they could they testified at the trial they did everything and this story of women and these were incredible women every single one of these women was a professional woman um these women their stories of what they did in this whole context has been not told and what is the most important thing that we seem to retell in these stories of villains and heroes is the pursuit is the men who went after the villain and became the hero so we have lots of information about that but we don't we don't tell the story from another perspective and we don't look at the woman's side. So that that's what I'm doing with this book. Wow, that sounds like it's going to be a real corker. I look forward to reading that hugely. Let's talk a little bit about the the, the kind of social historian that you are, because you have said for many, many years that there is this ridiculous divide between what is perceived to be real history 
and and the the kind of history that you're interested in the social history the history that comes that tells us about society from the bottom the bottom up which this book clearly uh, does do the one that won the Bailey Gifford prize last year I, I just just talk us through reflect for us how much you winning this prize might have shifted that for you well i think i think it is shifting hopefully a a trend in 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 publishing um this is something i mean it's like it's like facing off a a sort of monolith what i call great man history um uh facing off against this um for years i have been not hugely interested in the history of kings and queens and wars i mean yes all of that's interesting and i'm a historian and i can't i can't fail to be engaged by it but what i find is so missing from our understanding of history is um is what happened to people like us in the past what was the lived experience of being alive another another time in inhabiting another body what was that experience and actually that has the most relevance for people today and it's extraordinary when you try to talk to people about history you try to get them excited about things you know and you go in and you start talking about battles and you know a certain amount of people be interested in the mechanics of of how you know this victory was secured or this or that and the other but when you face an audience and you're giving a talk and you start talking about, well, what would it have been like to have given birth in the 18th century? What would it have been like to have suddenly found yourself without a job in the Victorian era? What would it have been like if you had a toothache? What would it, you know, all of these things, suddenly people just, they just zero in they want to know they want to know about the physical experiences and I think we need to start looking at history from the bottom up otherwise unfortunately you know um outside of these charmed circles of of people who like to read and and people who are already engaged by history history is seen as a type of irrelevance and we we can't afford to have that happen um and so I'm hoping that with books like The Five and other books that will be written in its wake, that we will be able to engage more people in history because of that. Stig, you and I are both broadcasters and journalists, and we are, of course, living in extraordinary times at the moment. I mean, I, you know, given that many people view, not everyone, but many people view journalism as the first draft of history, I wonder how you reflect on the kinds of things that you think people will look back on in this particular moment, because it, it really is difficult to keep up with every twist and turn, whether it's the science of the coronavirus, whether it's how social life has been curtailed and, and constrained. I, I just wonder what what you reflect on when you think about the moment that we're living in now. The thing I, I, I think about is, is the extent to which this is a blip or a turning point and how impossible it is to tell that. Uh, we're, we're clearly living in, in, in truly seismic times where we possibly were anyway, but we, it's more likely uh, post-coronavirus that that's the case. But the other thing I think about is if you look through literature, particularly how they responded to big pandemics, they never really reflect them very much. If you look, to, if you look at the, the Spanish flu that killed tens of millions of people in 1918, 1919, it didn't make its way into the modernist books very much. If you look at the fiction 
of the 1920s. There's hardly any Spanish flu in it. There's hardly any plague in Shakespeare, even though plague was ravaging London uh, at the end of the 16th century. There's not very much black death in Chaucer either. Uh, so I find that fascinating, that, that how the, these times we're living, that we feel, because we have sort of flayed-edged nerves, we feel them very keenly at the minute. In 100 years and 200 years' time, will they be in... They'll be in the historical record, but will they be in the sort of popular literary cultural record in the same way? Because when we look at parallel uh, events in the past, they haven't done. I find that fascinating. Why Shakespeare didn't write about um, the plague? Why didn't Virginia Woolf write about... Uh, the Spanish flu? Why is it not there in those great modernist uh, books at all? So how facts on the ground get transmuted into the culture, other than by straight history, I think is a, it, it's, a, it's an interesting and, and chastening thought. And then Hallie's right. I think these days the stories will be told of the people, of all different people all around the world. That very uh, great man theory, the very Western-centric view of history seems to me to be shifting all, all the time. But, but, but it is important to try and think of historical resonance. I was talking to someone just the other day about Beirut. And I said to, to him, and he had family in Beirut, there's just a giant explosion uh, in Beirut this week when we're talking now. And I said to, to him, what, what will it be like in Beirut tomorrow? And he said, it'll be like living in 1700 in terms of uh, the amenities, in terms of getting access to water, getting access to shelter, hospitals, all of those things. Beirut will be three centuries uh, back in the past. Um, and that historical uh, connection, immediately in my mind, because uh, like both of you, I've sort of soaked up reading lots of history, I can understand what he's talking about. So um, it's very hard to understand anything without having a historical uh, perspective. But what that history or how it will be written for ourselves in, in 100 years' time, uh, I think still very much all to play for. Mm, definitely. Yeah, Hallie, what are your reflections of, of the way in which the current moment is being chronicled through, through the lens of a historian? Well, I'm, I'm acutely aware of what's going on around me at all times um, and, and watching how people are responding and, and kind of existentially stepping outside of myself and looking at my own responses and being aware. And it's, it's hard to take off the historian's goggles um, and, and imagining, um, you know, imagining how, how this is going to be regarded how are we going to see this this all of these events happening at the same time because of course it's it's not just the pandemic it's things like black lives matter um it's things like um uh, the american election coming up it's you know us well at the moment we have no deal um uh, in terms of uh, uh, trade deal with with europe uh, from brexit and that's going to happen at the end of at the end of the year you know where is that going to lead us the the virus isn't going to be gone by then you know what's happening is all of these things are happening at the same time so it seems like uh, you know uh, quite an important moment in in our history but again we we have to let the tape run a bit so we know exactly what has happened let all the pieces settle and then the historians will 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 go to work but it is a pretty incredible time we're living through 
It certainly is. Uh, I am going to draw this conversation to a close. We've we've covered a huge amount of ground. Um, thank you so much, uh, Hallie Rubenhold, and thank you, Stig Abel. Uh, that's it uh, for today. Do join us next time to keep up to date with the latest news about the Bailey Gifford Prize. Follow at BG Prize on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram to join the conversation and sign up for the newsletter through the website. The 2020 Prize long list will be announced in September. September, not long to go, followed by the shortlist in October. The winner of the prize this year will be announced on November the 19th. And as always, thanks to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their continued support for this podcast, which has been produced primarily remotely. Until next time, from me, Razia Iqbal. Bye-bye for now. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for non-fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation and produced by Four Communications.